0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as I thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two 100 pound e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11:59 p.m. on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's podcast guest is the historical novelist Ken Follett, who joined us to talk about his latest book, The Evening and the Morning. Set in the tenth century at the end of the Dark Ages, the novel's a prequel to the Pillars of the Earth. BBC History Revealed's editor Charlotte Hodgman spoke to Ken to find out more.
1: So Ken, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. With um without giving away too many spoilers, um kind of summarise, you know, what, what, what is this new book that, that's coming out?
2: uh well it's set around the year 1000 in fact it be- in fact it begins in 997 and finishes in 1007 uh, which is a i thought uh an interesting period for um particularly british history but also norman and scandinavian history this is the moment when uh actually there are three groups Uh, powerful groups of people who have their sights set on ruling England. Of course, the Anglo-Saxons, who are there already, but a rather weak and unsophisticated society, particularly militarily weak. The Vikings, who uh, for 200 years had treated England like a shop where you didn't have to pay... And finally, the Normans, who are sort of eyeing us across the channel and getting interested in England. Uh, So those three groups, and and as we all know, (laughs) everybody, even people who who don't subscribe to BBC History know that halfway through the 11th century, the Normans won that contest, two-thirds of the way through. Uh, But nobody knows that at the time of this story. It's also... So that's the period... In the other um, aspect of it, uh, which I liked when I was just starting out on this book, um, was that it tells the early history of Kingsbridge, which is the fictional town where the cathedral is built in the Pillars of the Earth. And this is now the fourth book that I've written that's set wholly or partly in Kingsbridge, uh, and and the readers are beginning to to have an interest in this place for its own sake, as it were. There's a website dedicated to Kingsbridge.
1: Oh, wow, okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and um, so, you know, we've seen it through the building of the cathedral, then through the Black Death, and then through the 16th century religious controversies and the Spanish Armada and all that. Uh, And now, so now we're going back to see what this what this place was like before it was a big important city. In fact, when it was just half a dozen houses by a river.
1: And it's, it's interesting that you say that um, this is a this is it is a very interesting period of history. But it's also kind of a time when the kind of the. The English net, the sort of identity of being English is, is slowly beginning to be to be formed. Um, is that something that you were kind of you, you wanted to kind of show in the book through the, some of the characters that this kind of notion of of what it is to be English was was sort of being created at this time?
2: No, I I didn't I didn't think that I didn't think it was yet time for that. Um, talking about the. End of the tenth century, beginning of the eleventh century. True, England is being ruled as a single country, theoretically, uh, uh, and um, but this is a relatively new thing. It certainly hasn't settled down, and quite what people, how people identified, is not clear to me. I'm not sure that we have a, a real concept. Of England until we get to the 16th century. And then Shakespeare, of course, articulates it um, with his usual verve and brilliance. But I don't recall before that, I don't recall any anything much about, um, you know, we are English, England is our country. Uh, and all that. So I think at this time, people probably still identified more with their county or city or region or even just the hundred in which their village was located. Um, uh, it's a, it's a jolly interesting question, I think. You know, what did, if, if, what would, what would those dark ages Anglo-Saxons say now if you said to them, what group do you belong to um, uh, but i don't think there's yet any evidence that they say England
1: okay yeah it's interesting um and you know the vikings you know quite early on in the book i don't want to give too much away but there's there's quite a quite a scary viking raid um takes place um did you base that you know the details of that on on kind of things that you've read about, you know, actual Viking raids that have been recorded? Or, um, you know, what sort of impact were the Vikings having um, at this period in which the book is written?
2: Well, their impact was tremendous. And even if you'd never met, even if you were lucky enough never to have met them, you would be conscious of them as a threatening presence, just, you know, uh, just uh, a a few miles away, liable at any rate to... To show up at any moment and set fire, and steal everything that wasn't nailed down, uh, and uh, uh, kill people and all that sort of thing. So, so the impact I think was huge of the Vikings, just as that, just as a menace and a threat. Of course, by now, by now they had been raiding for two hundred years, and quite a lot of them had settled, particularly in the along the east coast of England. So um and I presume since they had settled in England <laughs> they no longer raided England. Um, the uh the well what are our sources of information about a Viking raid? Well we have uh most importantly the ships and there is a wonderful museum in Oslo in Norway called the Viking Ship Museum which has two full-size ships mostly original some restoration uh and they are very impressive and the sense they're very beautiful and menacing and uh, for me that was that was uh, the first sort of thing I grabbed hold of in thinking about the Vikings, that they had these beautiful, very fast ships, which also looked terrifying. And then we know something about their weapons. Um, uh, the most usual weapon at this point for almost everybody involved in battle would be a spear. Uh, i this is something I learned in the course of writing the book uh, i i gave you know I gave my soldiers swords and axes and um uh hammers and all the historians that i was who were helping me get these facts right said uh, no 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 um the spear was the standard weapon at this time, so the spear would have been a weapon um you would have uh, uh, and they and some of them uh, would have had uh, iron helmets, uh, but um, uh, I, we're now getting to where I start to imagine it rather than research it, because, of course, there, <laughs> there is no picture in existence of one of these Viking raids. Um, we, we know we know what they stole. Uh, we know that they took uh, young men and women, uh, they kidnapped young men and women, Uh, to sell as slaves because the Vikings had three... There were three large slave markets in northwest Europe and the Vikings controlled them and they were in Dublin, Bristol and Rouen. Uh, So we know that they... From that we know that they were slavers. Um, And um, as as for, you know, the... The actual fighting, you know, that's something that the historical novelist has to make up given the basic facts that he knows. Um, for example, I think, I think it goes almost without saying that these men who who came specifically to steal and kill and burn were likely to be more practised at the art of violence than the fishermen and bakers and so on who they robbed. Uh, you know, ordinary village people might well have been brave enough to fight back, but it's not. But they wouldn't have won. Um, they would have been foolhardy, much better, I should think, to run. And most of the people... In that in the first chapter most of the people in the town that's what they do they run away it's what I would have done <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I'd have been there too um yeah I mean it's, that's kind of one of the frustrating things about this this period of history is is how little of the detail that we know because um, as you said the the you know Vikings would have settled by then um, but I mean we probably don't know do we whether how how these kind of the next generations of these settlers were seen. Were they seen as foreigners still? Were they, um, it's, it's yeah, it's just, it's a kind of an interesting thought.
2: I, I don't get the impression that they integrated the Vikings at this point, uh, because they 're talked about aren 't they we they we talk about Danegeld, the tax they paid and the and the part of the country they occupied is sometimes called the Dane law, so it seems to have been clearly identified in people 's minds as the Viking territory it 's not as if they you know settled down here and there and blended into the population it doesn 't look as if that happened
1: no no and um, you mentioned briefly earlier about um that you, you sort of bring in France and, and the Normans um sort of are beginning to come into, into the story. Um, one of your main characters, um, Ragnar, she's a, a Norman noblewoman um who who comes to England, she 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 marries an English alderman. Um it, were marriages and unions between, you know, different countries or people from different countries common at this time? Are you you know, are you basing this on anything that you you've read?
2: Yes, I think they were common amongst the nobility uh, and and I was confident in the story uh, of Ragnar because uh, at almost the same time uh, a young norman Norman woman called Emma of Normandy came to England and married the king married Ethelred Ethelred the unread. Um, she was, uh, she was, I think, uh, eighteen when she married him, uh, and she appears in the book. Um, so clearly, uh, we, we we see from that that it wasn't, uh, it, it doesn't seem to have been unusual for a marriage across the channel to take place. Um, Emma was uh, a very interesting woman. She married Ethelred, and when when he died, she married the next king of England, who was Canute. Uh, and then, uh, one of her children was Edward the Confessor, who was the next King of England. So there was a Norman woman who was absolutely at the heart of English politics for a very long period of time. And I would guess would, was, was extremely powerful. I mean, you can't, you know, you, it, it's not very likely that Somebody who lived that life was a shrinking violet. I, I imagine that um, – I certainly imagine her as being a woman of power and influence in the English court. So um, uh, it's, she is an example of how, despite the rhetoric of the time, which is all about women being inferior and over-emotional and feeble and all that – uh, despite all that sort of thing, uh, even in the Dark Ages, women could become very powerful people.
1: And did you get a sense that that was acceptable for a woman to be in a position of power?
2: Yes, I think, I suspect, it. basically it has always been acceptable because we are constantly reading about princesses and countesses, abbesses, you know, a uh, the, the, a, a nun who was ruler of an, of a convent might, um, be extremely rich, uh, and, um, and employ many people, uh, and have tremendous influence in, in, a, uh, the area, uh, which she owned or the, the convent owned, but she certainly had the rights of ownership. So, uh, and it, it, it was commonplace, I think, every, when a, when a, a lord, when a nobleman went to war, somebody had to mind the shop. And most of the time that would have been his wife. Um, that would be who he trusted, that would be who knew the territory, who knew who the reliable people were and who the dishonest people were and all that sort of thing. So I it seems to me that that women have have always played that kind of role, even though it wasn't always acknowledged.
1: And as you said, this is you know the the end of this the the time period of this book is about sort of sixty or so years before the Norman Conquest. Um, but it's interesting that Ragnar kind of she she struggles, doesn't she, to kind of to adjust to. To, to life in uh, in England, what have you, did you kind of notice that, what, what sort of the key differences between, you know, life as a Norman lady and, and, and you know, and life in England at that time? Was there anything that kind of struck you?
2: Well, there's some controversy about this, because amongst historians of this period, there are really two factions. Uh, there are some uh, who, who try to argue that that the Dark Ages weren't as dark as people say, and that Anglo-Saxon society was sophisticated and highly developed. Uh, I think that's a hard argument to make. Um, They talk about the great Anglo-Saxon culture, but when you get down to details, what did Anglo-Saxon culture produce? Well, embroidery, okay? Okay. Embroidery at the time was a great and important art. And in fact, there was an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum a few years ago that I went to see of um, English embroidery uh, that had travelled all over the world. These ancient pieces, mostly priestly vestments that had been embroidered with scenes of saints' lives and so on, Bible stories, um, had been sold or given to bishops and archbishops all over Europe. So so okay they were great embroiderers that that isn't quite a great culture. Um and it's certainly clear that the enforcement of the law was extremely weak in Anglo-Saxon society and that's a, I find that more important than embroidery. There's an argument that goes on anyway my take on it is that Norman society was more sophisticated than Anglo-Saxon society? I, I, I've I gave you that whole preamble because I, 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 you know, I don't want to pretend that this is the only view. There is an alternative view, but I think, and I would cite the fact that the Normans at this period, around about the year one thousand, were already building um, elaborate castles and much bigger churches in England at this period. There were no castles at all. We didn't have any castles till the Normans came. And the churches were very small. If you look at Anglo-Saxon churches in England today, those few that remain entire, they're tiny and dark and um, very poor building technique, very, very thick walls and tiny little windows, really very unsophisticated. The other thing the other thing that struck me the difference that struck me is that by this point slavery had died out in normandy pretty much um there might have been a few slaves left but uh it was uh it was it was very uncommon by this time if not completely stamped out and and uh, in england it was commonplace and and if we're to believe the doomsday book 10 percent of the english population was slaves that's a big percentage and it's a proper slave society um and and the normans were past that stage probably and um, this is something that historians speculate about but it seems plausible to me the church was against slavery not not on human rights grounds but because slaves are always used for prostitution and the church was certainly against that uh, And and you know the there's always been a connection, still is tragically, between slavery and prostitution. And the church disapproved of that. Now the church had a stronger hold over society in Normandy than it did in England. In England at this time, marriage was not a church service. Marriage was a civil ceremony in which two people made promises to one another in front of witnesses. And they might well ask a priest to bless the marriage, but they didn't need a priest, and the marriage was not a a, um, a, a holy rite. It was purely a, a civil thing. So the rules were not as strong. Um, uh, the, uh, bigamy uh, was not forbidden by any means. Now, of course, Norman... Noblemen had uh, mistresses, often living in the house, but it, it, was, it was unofficial. It wasn't recognised, whereas it seems that in England the, the, the presence of more than one wife in a, a man's life uh, was not unusual and was not regarded as a sin
1: this is the earliest time period that you've, you've covered in, in any of your books to date. Um, what sort of difference or, or impact did that have on the way you went about researching it? Um, obviously, the sources, I'd imagine, were a big a big kind of a hindrance, I guess, the lack of.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Um, and um, I actually... Uh, people say to me, "Well, that's all right because you can make things up." But I actually prefer—I <laughs> prefer to have the facts because uh, I, you know, history inspires me. That's what this is all about for me. And um, uh, uh, when I do the research and I find out interesting things about uh, Anglo-Saxon society, it gives me the idea for scenes, dramatic scenes in the story. So, uh, but anyway, um, there is one rich source of information about. Society at this period, and that of course is the Bayeux Tapestry. Uh, it's um, it tells the story. It's a strip cartoon. It's 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 coloured wool, embroidered on linen panels. It's uh, it's about sixty yards long, and uh, it tells the story of the Norman Conquest. But as it were, accidentally, it also reveals an awful lot of wonderful detail about everyday life. Uh, things like one of the panels shows people having dinner, so we see their tableware and we see the cooks cooking it alongside, and we see what they 're sitting on and what they 're drinking from all that kind of thing is is absolutely priceless for a period where, from which there are not many pictures. and there's not much written information either about everyday life, there's a marvellous panel in which people are boarding a ship. Uh, And um, there were no jetties uh, at this period. So how did people get on board? Well, uh, they hitched up their tunics and waded through the water until they got to the ship and then they climbed aboard and there's a marvelous picture of them doing this uh including a v- v- lovely human touch one of these people is carrying his dog which i thought was lovely because you know dogs dogs can swim <laughs> you know you don't need to carry the darn dog he'll follow you But <laughs> this must have must have been a very precious dog or something anyway i just it was a wonderful touch and the bio tapestry there are two the original is in Bayeux, of course, in Normandy. But there's a copy in the in the Reading Museum, uh, and um, for some reason, uh, a bunch of thirty or forty women in the Victorian era got together and decided to make a copy of the Bayou tapestry, and they they embroidered. The, all of these, I think there are 74, 74, panels, something like that. Uh, but anyway, all of these, pa- they just cop, and copied them pretty meticulously. I've seen both of these and, and I, I, I didn't notice any differences between them. Uh, and, um, what, what, what was in those women's minds? I can't imagine, but they did us all a great service because it does mean that you can look at the bio tapestry without actually having to cross the channel. That's <laughs> a pretty
1: must have been a pretty daunting task to to start stitching that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, I one thing that probably a lot of your readers would be wanting to know is why you decided to to write a prequel to um, to Pillars of the Earth rather than carry on the Kingsbridge story beyond the last book.
2: Well, I think it's. Uh, what I mentioned earlier—the the attraction of thinking about what Kingsbridge was before it was a big town, and the story of how it became a big town—because by the end of the evening and the morning, it is a, it is a a town. It's it's a, it doesn't have a cathedral yet, but it's a it's a thriving, prosperous place uh, uh, with um, with a good deal of culture, as opposed to the Hamlet that it, that it is at the beginning of the story. And how that comes about is the kind of thing that interests me and gives me drama for the story. You know, when there's progress, of course, there are always people who don't want progress. Uh, there are, you know, so you automatically You've got a situation in which some people say we we must we must change this. We must change. We must advance. And other people saying we let let's keep everything the way it's always been. We like things the way they've always been. Let's not change anything. And that's a that's a jolly good social conflict uh, for creating drama in this kind of story.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast
2: slavery is always absolutely horrible it's never an amiable friendly sort of thing most books about um this period don't emphasize the slavery but if it was 10% of the population it would have been right in your face
1: do you i mean there there's some quite sort of big characters in, in this period so you, you it's kind of written around the uh, during the reign of um Ethelred the the Unready. Um, Some of your other books do kind of feature well-known sort of actual historical characters. Have you done the same with this book? Um, And if not, why is that? Is that because the the characters aren't there for this period or you just chose to to kind of make your own?
2: Um, It's true that we don't know uh, the identities of as many characters in this period as we do in later periods. Um, And... Oh, of course, in, in, at, at this time, the king was a kind of um, judge of last resort, uh, a quarrel that couldn't be uh, resolved in any other way. He might be taken to the king. The king's ability to enforce his decisions is another story because his, he was actually in some ways very weak. But so anyway, the, the king is in the story, but he doesn't show up. In the evening and the morning until at least halfway through, and that 's because he he uh, he was although he moved around a lot from city to city and from region to region uh, that it was you know with no phone and no postal service, it was quite difficult to get in touch with him. You would have to send a messenger to the last place he was known to have visited. And obviously a messenger along the way would be constantly saying to people, have you heard where the king might be at the moment? But it would be a very hazardous business trying to find the king to get a message to him uh, and trying to find him when he was holding court and so that you could bring your grievance to him. Would be even more difficult. So um, he's kind of an absent figure. He's in the story, and so is Emma of Normandy. And there are two archbishops of Canterbury who appear in the story, because, and and you know there were were the two centres of wealth and power in England: Canterbury, number one cathedral, uh, and the king, who is the most important, non-religious figure of power. But there really wasn't, you know, there there really weren't other interesting people. Um, the other real person that I've mentioned in the story is Wolfbald. Uh, he doesn't actually appear, he doesn't come on stage, but people talk about him because famous legal case from this period. And it's the only Anglo-Saxon legal case, I think, about which we have it very much detail. Wolfbald, uh, when his father died, he seized his stepmother's land. And in the Anglo-Saxon period, something that was lost when the Normans came, in the Anglo-Saxon period, women could own property, they had their own property. And this was illegal for him to did take his stepmother's land, and she complained to the king. And the king, this was Ethel, this was Ethelred. King ruled in her favour, and Wolfbald ignored him. And so the king fined Wolfbald. Wolfbald didn't pay the fine, and then the king ruled that Wolfbald's person and all his possessions were now the property of the king. Wolfbald ignored that, and eventually Wolfbold Wolfbald died without ever. Giving in, and after he was dead, his wife carried on behaving in the same way. So it's clear from that story to 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 me, uh, crystal clear, that a nobleman who was determined to defy the king could get away with it. Um, probably wasn't always the smartest thing to do, and most noblemen undoubtedly tried to get on well with the king so that they could get things from him, get more land and all that sort of thing. But um, uh, somebody who took the opposite view could just defy the king and it was very difficult for the king to do anything about it. There was no civil service, there was no standing army and there was no police force. So the king, all the king could do would be to gather an army and go and, and do, uh, what was it called? Uh, harrying. Go and harry the neighbourhood. Um, that was just a matter of setting fire to things and, and, and stealing things, uh, making everybody's lives miserable, and then going away again, and didn't actually wasn't a very good way of enforcing the law. Uh, so, um, uh, so anyway, that's wolfballed. Um, but other than that, there really aren't individuals who need to be in the story, real, real life individuals.
1: What about um events did you, did you decide or decide to keep because this period sees um of course the the uh, uh, Sir Bryce's Day massacre in um fa- thousand and two Is that something you chose to kind of keep was that relevant to the story? did you try and, did you keep that um, in the book
2: no that, that's not in the book, and the reason is that it's a bit it's a bit muddied. Um, the massacre was ordered, certainly, uh, but it doesn 't seem to have been carried out very widely. if I remember rightly there were Vikings were killed in was it Oxford? I think it might have been Oxford Vikings were killed, but there is but there's very little detail and very little evidence of of a of you know seriously large numbers of people being slaughtered. It offended the Vikings, apparently. That's very credible, because even if, you know, even if only a couple of hundred people were slaughtered, then that would offend them. Um, but he he ordered that all the Vikings in England should be slaughtered, and that would have been thousands and thousands of people, and that clearly didn't happen. So I, it's, it's a story, and it's not a story. Um, and so I left that out. I kept in uh, all the fighting around Exeter, because um, Exeter was a prize, it was a rich city. was It was, a, it was a, a river port, still is obviously. I had a cathedral already then uh, traders, wealthy priests, and uh, there was a lot to steal, but it was quite well defended, and the Vikings made several attempts to take the city of Exeter. Uh, and for a long time they didn't succeed, and then eventually they did. I think it was in about if i remember right it was about ten o three that finally the Vikings took the city of exeter uh, and so there's a there's a lot in the book about fighting around exeter because that's relevant uh you know kingsbridge is is vaguely somewhere in the southwest roughly where Marlborough is today uh and so the so people from people from my story would have had to go and fight in, in the uh, battles in uh, uh, and around Exeter. And so we have some of that in it because it's directly relevant. Uh, but, you know, then I wonder, of course, we, it's in the massacre's in the history books, but did people living 200 miles away even know
1: well that's the thing isn't it yeah' like you're saying like communication and and you know people tended to stay in their own communities how you know how far did this sort of information travel um it's one of the one of the things we don't really know isn't it
2: well I think we have to assume that news got around extremely slowly it probably got garbled in the transmission even more than it does today on the internet and the tabloids <laughs> Um but this, but the slowness you see is, uh, and in bad weather, you know, a, a trip that we would that you'd now do in a car in half a day might take a week or two.
1: It's interesting that this period of history seems to have had a bit of a resurgence of, of popularity of late. Um, I'm thinking, you know, things like you know the the Last Kingdom on TV and things like that. It seems to be people seem to be very very kind of focusing on this at the moment why do you think it is why do you think we are so keen to to learn about this period and, and you know the vikings and, and all this this sort of thing
2: there's a fascination i think about thinking about people who are basically like us basically concerned with love and marriage raising children making money going to war people people who really haven't changed in a thousand years people like us actually living in horrendously different circumstances and you think to yourself how would i have managed you know with you know every year subsistence farmers i mean it's still true in the world today there aren't that many subsistence farmers left thank god but um subsistence farmers if there's a bad harvest some of them die that's how it works subsistence means subsistence if there's not enough food somebody starves and um, you know it'll be the weaker in the bad years it will be the weaker ones the small children and the old people who go but nevertheless a bad harvest meant meant death for some of them and that sort of uh, Living a life that brutal was also very violent. There was much more crime in these times than there is today. People think, people think there's a lot of crime today. It's, it's, you know, Lincoln, one year, court records for one year in Lincoln, actually it's the year 1200, I think, show that the courts in Lincoln dealt with a hundred homicides. Now, Lincoln was a city of 5,000 people. Think of that many homicides. In fact, fi- it's it's a huge level of criminality and um uh, uh you know that you know people, you know people are read something in the newspapers today and they're frightened to go to the shops in those days uh it must have been absolutely terrifying so um I think, I think there's a sort of horrid fascination. I think it, well, part of the pleasure is making you feel how lucky you are to be sitting in your centrally heated house, <laughs> wearing your, wearing your cashmere sweater to keep you warm and, you know, drinking a lovely glass of wine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, do you, did you find it hard to, get yourself almost into the mindset of somebody who, who might have lived at that time? Because obviously, like as we said earlier, your later books cover, you know, perhaps you, we have more in common perhaps with people who lived obviously closer to, to where we are today. Did you find it harder to get yourself into that kind of early medieval mindset?
2: Well, I, perhaps a little bit. But, you know, that, I mean, that is what this job is all about, is imagining yourself. The writer imagines himself in the heart of somebody who is not like him, somebody in a different historical period, somebody, it might be somebody who lives in a different country, speaks a different language, might be a man writing about a female character or vice versa. It's it's what we do and it's what this is all about. And it's, um, uh, uh, you know, once you get started on this, uh well for me i just always was like that uh, you know when i was 9 years old i was always a cowboy or a pirate or the captain of a spaceship uh, i lived in my imagination as a child and uh, and when i grew up i found a job that allowed me to continue living in my imagination so that is sort of what we do and um uh, uh and you know it, Uh, somebody if you can't do it with conviction then you can't be a novelist it's it's uh, it's very basic um conviction is of course the answer i mean it you know uh it the, the the reader doesn't necessarily buy everything that you tell her or him uh and you've got to be you know you've you've got to put things in the story which persuade the reader that you know what you're talking about.
1: Now, you've got a lot of followers out there who are very excited um, that you've you've done this prequel. Um, it's 30 years, isn't it, after Pillars of the Earth, I think it is, was first published. That's right, 1989. Yeah. 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 Um, um, I've got a few questions just from people on, on social media um, when we, we let people know that we were talking to you today. So Jessica Roberts wanted to know, do you think humanity and humans are fundamentally the same regardless of the era they lived in um and if so how do you how do you relate to people in the past um I
2: think yes, I think we are the same, certainly as far back as a thousand years ago, and probably farther I mean if you went back twelve thousand years to the time of the hunter gatherers you might um you you might have second thoughts but a th- human beings don't change much in a thousand years and i and uh, my my belief is that um, their fundamental concerns must have been the same as ours uh, love and marriage and uh, and family and work and money uh, and war and conflict these things must have been the things closest to their hearts as they're closest to our hearts. And those are the things that we write about. Um, uh, There are a couple of... People sometimes say, in those days, life was cheap. And uh, if, if people had seven children and three of them died, it wasn't such a big deal. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe people ever found the death of children something easy to cope with. Um, That makes no sense to me. There is a a good argument to say that people could be crueler in those days. And if you think about the way, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, the way people were executed, you know, burning to death, various other horrendous punishments. Um, And... I was very struck when I was writing A Column of Fire, which is set in the 16th century, that um, uh, the the theatre was just being invented. And the rival attractions were things like bear baiting, bullfighting. Apparently, Queen Elizabeth I loved to go to the bear baiting. And this is, you know, we think of Queen Elizabeth I as an extremely cultivated, intelligent and sensitive woman who cleverly ruled England for a long period of time uh, and yet she went to this this awful, brutal sport which involved torturing animals And but I think that in that way people in the past may have been different from us because um, uh, most people today don't want to go to sports and shows that involve people being animals and people being hurt. Most of us shudder and turn away from that. So that may be one way in which um, uh, in which we're different. But I, I, I think in the basics, I believe we're the same.
1: Laura uh, would like to know something that um, you found fascinating or surprising that you found out whilst researching this particular book.
2: Well, I became aware while I was researching the evening and the morning of the extent to which England was a slave society. Something like 10% of the population were slaves. It's something that's played down by the historians. And some of my conversations with historians about this, they, they would say things like, well, it wasn't that bad. And I just don't believe that. Okay. I mean, it's only my opinion, but I believe slavery is always horrible. Um, one of the historians said to me, said, said to me, you, uh, there's a scene in which somebody kills a slave that he owns and he's not, he hasn't committed a crime because it's a slave. And a historian said to me, you know, it was against the law to kill a slave. And I said, well, let me read this law. And what the law actually says is that is that a man shall not kill a slave in anger ha ah, which means that if you do it soberly and rationally it's okay and if you do kill a slave in anger the, the punishment prescribed was 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 a joke it was fasting you know when fasting means no meat it doesn't mean not eating you know so it was a it was a it was a, a very narrowly um specified crime uh, which you could easily wriggle out of by saying i wasn't very angry actually uh and 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 the punishment was 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 a joke, so the truth of the matter is you could kill a slave if you own, and that of course what it 's what it means to own a person you own a person and you can kill him or her, do anything you like um, there is a character in the story there 's a scene in the book where a character says owning slaves is very bad for people, it brings out the worst in them. And that, I think, I mean, that, that's my idea. That's not a Dark Ages idea. I just thought a, a sensitive person, I think it's a monk who says that, a, a person of sens- sensitivity and moral awareness would have noticed something like that, even in the Dark Ages. Uh, and so, of course, there would have been decent slave owners and awful slave owners, but the fact of the matter was it, 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 slavery is always absolutely horrible it's never an amiable friendly sort of thing and um uh i sort of writing the evening and the morning i sort of have to, had to confront that uh i i most books about um this period don't emphasize the slavery but if it was 10% of the population it would have been right in your face yeah yeah
1: yeah well, Yes, that's a huge amount of people yeah um, and finally, just with one more, um, Zach Courtier wanted to know, are you planning to write any more Kingsbridge novels after this one? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Chaining you to the desk already.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm not planning to, uh, but there's a saying, um, never say never. And I'm certainly not saying never. Uh, really, as far as I'm concerned, it'll be if... Well, that moment when I'm finishing one book and vaguely thinking about what I might do next, if if I'm struck by an idea that I think is absolutely wonderful and it's a Kingsbridge story, then I'll do it. And if I'm struck by something else, then I'll do that. So um, so I'm, I'm sorry that I can't give, a, uh, give Zach a more definite answer than that.
0: That was Ken Follett. The Evening and the Morning, is out now, published by Macmillan. You can also read a Q&A with Ken in the November issue of BBC History Revealed magazine. That's on sale from the 1st of October, and also includes an essential guide to the Vikings, as well as articles on the Mayflower, the slums of New York, and the UN. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in on Wednesday when John Wyatt Greenlee will be explaining why medieval people paid their rent in eels.